Hello, and welcome to the final farewell episode of I'm Glad You Asked. It's a sad moment, um, but we did have a wonderful conversation and a wonderful conversation for you to look forward to. On today's episode, we talked a little bit about how you can have conversations across political difference. We talk political psychology, we talk political socialization, how to have these conversations. We're also joined by two kick-ass professors, Dr. Whitney Court and Dr. Colin Hannigan. At least one and a half, yeah. 1.5 max. (laughs) Greater than or equal to, less than or equal to. And a kick-ass student, Laurel Poole. Yeah, so we have an awesome episode. We'd like to thank our loyal base of listeners, um, helping us become an internationally acclaimed sensational podcast sweeping the globe that's actually true we had a couple of listeners um yeah where were they do you remember somewhere outside the united states somewhere that's outside for sure of the u.s that's why so that's, we're international we're, in, we're worldwide and also we thank our sponsor anchor obviously anchor you made this all possible it's always hard to part with the thousands mm-hmm. borderline millions of yeah. listeners that we have actively but mm-hmm. sometimes life takes you in different directions yes that's what we're gonna do yeah So, with that, we hope you enjoy this final episode. Cheers. Here she is. So, in terms of the first question, so political science scientists often say that the family is the most important factor in political socialization. How does the family influence our political ideologies and beliefs? Do you want to take a crack at that first, Colin, or do you want, I don't want to, I know that. I mean, you're the, you're the political psycho. Well, yes, yes. Well, so when you think about it, right, like, like those are such formative years that you're spending with your family. Um, And so, so from just a kind of absorbing the environment around you kind of a way. There's, there's a lot of um, values being instilled in people there that then they can apply later on in life um, by their family, the people that they're primarily spending their time with. Um, but we also get into, and I know you've got some questions on this later, um, whether or not some of that is also just kind of the natural brain structure of someone, right? Um, and, and through that having different, like when we look at a conservative brain and a liberal brain, um, there are areas of the brain that are differently sized. And we see those patterns when we work with um, kind of the biomedical side of things. And, and we're able to, to um, look at how the brain processes information differently. Now, of course, we can't strap babies up to these MRI machines and everything to find out whether or not they're simply born that way or they're using those different parts of the brains more over time, growing that gray, gray matter in certain spots. Um, but we know that, they're, that we're structured differently um, in, in uh, that's likely shaped by either genetics and or um, those factors that they're around so that they use certain parts of their brains more. Um, than others just based off of kind of their exposure within their family, what their family values, things like that. Now there's of course other factors, right? Like two, but, but family being kind of that main one. Yeah, family certainly has to be sort of like the first one because that's the first sort of group in society that you're surrounded by. But I think you, you make a really interesting point, Dr. Court, about values. I find that in my experience teaching politics and political life, Students sometimes have a difficult time um, addressing how their family shapes their ideologies and and their politics because sometimes they think about it so strictly in terms of partisan affiliation or like this this specific ideological spectrum that they're used to. But I, I try to get them to focus more on the mechanisms for which we might develop those ideologies or those those partisan affiliations by looking at like, well, what do you value, whether it's explicitly political or not? that you might be able to attribute to something as you were growing up. Maybe your family instilled in you or imparted some really strong value in, you know, the importance of education or in, you know, maintaining respect for the golden rule or something like that, that you then translate into some sort of ideological perspective or some partisan affiliation based on what else you see in society. Those values, I think, are are incredibly important, whether they're overtly political or not, because I think they have political consequences, too. But again, I'm not 
as well versed in the political psych literature as you are. So I think maybe I could be wrong. You're good. You're good. Thanks. <laughs> you well, speaking team. of kind of some of those mechanisms and influences, I wonder if any of you have kind of personal examples of maybe values that your family has instilled in you that has shaped your political ide ideology a little bit more. Dr. Corden, Dr. Hannigan, I know that as professors, maybe you're trying to maintain some air of neutrality about your political ideology, but some example could be helpful as like a concrete, you know, influencer. Well, yeah. oh, go ahead. Were you going to go ahead? No, go ahead. <laughs> no, no. You <laughs> Things that are kind of subtly um, uh, instilled in you can kind of bleed into these things that later on, as you start to study things um, with like personality or with um, moral convictions and how they influence people's um, uh, political views, that these characteristics, you know, I grew up in a household where my mom would tell us, Dugans don't quit. Right. And so whatever we started, we had to finish and we were pushing to some things that we didn't exactly want to start, let's just say. Right. You know, but it's like you made that dedication. You're going to be in young astronauts, even though you're the only girl in that in the first grade. And it's just a bunch of nerd boys that you have to then go on the other side of the curtain in the lunchroom and eat with. And they're going to have to come and get you each time they meet on a Tuesday because you're going to like try to slide out of it, but you're going to have to go and just do it. Right. Cause, cause you said you wanted to do it. And so, so like those sorts of things that, that even, even things that seem kind of apolitical uh, can end up kind of translating to these things that um, end up being foundations for what your future political beliefs end up resting on. That makes sense. Yeah, I think it does. And I, I totally agree. I had a similar sort of experience. We didn't have the, the nice, you know, Dugans don't quit slogan, but I mean, I definitely grew up in a similar sort of environment. My, my mom was a, a teacher, fourth grade, and then she became a, a vice principal. So she was like the lead disciplinarian of the school. And she was like, she still is massively uh, addicted to like working. And so was my dad. Like they're very much perfectionists, which like I didn't get that gene clearly. Um, but uh, I, I certainly got this gene of like dedicating myself to, to working hard and to, to sort of like pushing myself to continue working. And that absolutely, I think, shapes some of the ideological values that I hold as well in the political sphere. Laurel, it looked like you had something on the tip of your tongue. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, I don't have like all of I don't know, like I don't have all of the studies to back myself up, but just from my experience, um, I think that like, kind of like Colin said, political like socialization, like your family is the first like people where you closely socialize, like that's the first collective community that you're learning to live in. And so like the different like things that your family chooses to show you or the way that they experience the world, like kind of changes your ethics and like the way that you either trust people or don't trust people's intentions. If you like my family looks at the world in a way of like you kind of have to fight for what you want and you have to earn it. And so like that definitely changes like changed my political perspectives coming from like a household that like didn't trust the intentions of others. So like either challenging that or learning that like sometimes you can trust people was very different and like that definitely influences like the political values system that I was like brought up in. I think that's really important too Laurel the, the, the fact that you mentioned that sometimes it's challenging or sometimes you challenge it the values that you hold from your family because I think I mean apart from the fact that the family might be sort of the earlier earliest influence in terms of socializing agents, there are still all sorts of other socializing factors in society, like your peers, like your, your educational career, like you go to school and you're stuck in a room with all sorts of students and you're, you're sort of um, presided over by an authority, an authority figure and a, and a teacher. And so you learn new values or you learn like whether the values that you thought were good and right and just and fair really kind of jive in a broader society. So I think peers and education, even like technology, now with like you know, TikTok and Twitter and all those 
Snapchat. You learn sort of what's cool and what's not cool based on social reactions to those sorts of things. And socialization processes continues, continues indefinitely, I guess, theoretically. Well, and to kind of formalize that within the literature, right? The things that you were just talking about, like when we look at things like openness to experience, right? It seems innocent enough. Somebody can be on a scale when we're talking about personality factors and how they might influence things like your ideology. Um, if you take something like openness to experience, um, that is something that tends to lean towards a more liberal characteristic, right? And people on the conservative end of the scale tend to want to maintain the status quo. Um, they tend to, to want to have that, um, that stability over the uh, potential opportunities by taking that risk and being open to experiences, right? And that openness to experience is something that your family can expose you to. You know, there, there's families that do a lot of travel or there's families that, that the way that they talk about issues happening in the world can expose you to potentially having empathy outside of your, your basic kind of social exposure, right? And those sorts of things. And that's part of why too, you'll hear people say like, oh, you know, you go to college and they turn you liberal, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's much more kind of that opportunity to explore things outside of your own uh, social experience um, leading into college that leads you to be like more open to experiences and things like that. Um, because you've been exposed and pushed out of kind of your comfort zone a little bit more. Um, that might that might turn somebody to be a little bit more moderate than maybe they came in or or slide down the scale a little bit more. Yeah, and going off of what Court said, I got to take Court's political psychology class, and in that class, we took the personality test with openness to experience, and I scored a hundred out of a hundred on that, which happens to ideologically weird flex. Weird yeah, I was gonna say weird flex, but all right, yeah. We'll see why I'm on this podcast so I can work in my personality results. But it also lines up very well with me being left-leaning, like it makes a lot of sense. But a question that comes to mind when talking about socialization versus things like personality and brain structure that you were born with, how much flexibility is there between those two like areas that create your political ideology? Like if I'm born with a personality trait that does not line up with an ideology, but I'm socialized in that way, how much flexibility do you see between those two competing factors? Well, to begin to answer this, um, when we look at just the things that we usually ask people on, um, you know, what's your race, what's your religion, these sorts of things, that explains typically, if I'm recalling this correctly, about just over 30% of people's, you know, ultimately their ideologies or the way they're going to vote and those types of things. Um, so that leads a, a huge gaping hole there. And that's why it's, it's so critical that we're starting to work now more um, with, with scientists that can do things like understand the genetic factors that can come into play or, or those brain structure factors that can come into play. Um, because what, what we know is, is the brain does change and evolve, right? Like, like it does over time change and evolve. Um, so we, we have to have more like longitudinal studies here to be able to really kind of understand what is happening. Um, but again, you get into the issue of ethically, is it okay to have parents approval to have children scanned um, by an MRI machine and holding a child still in an MRI machine to have those images actually be taken would be a horrible, horrible, um, uh, and, and on their heads, right? Um, so good luck as somebody who has a couple of kids, uh, yeah, you, you go ahead and try that, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, 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 not, it's not an easy thing to do. So being able to um, study that evolution um, would, be, would be difficult. And it's also difficult. And, and one of the things that we're trying to, um, to answer is, is to try to figure out what does occur over time. Um, how much does that change? Um, what are you just kind of stuck with? We know that this does though tell us about people's potential preferences, right? Um, at that given time when we're looking at it. Um, I don't know if that answered your question. Basically we don't have a good answer for that yet. Um, that stuff is all kind of still developing in the research and, and we're, we're honing in on those types of questions now. 
Well, and so when Regan and I were were prepping for this this podcast, I think we were kind of in agreement that one of the reasons that's so important to talk about these factors that form political ideologies in the context of having a discussion of with someone of a differing political ideology is that it helps us to have empathy, right? When we understand that family circumstances and who a person is biologically to whatever extent influences their political beliefs, it can help us to understand that our radically different circumstances contribute to that difference. And so kind of being mindful of that and what we've covered in this conversation, I wonder personally, how do you navigate conversations with people of differing political beliefs and has that changed over time? I think uh, I, just to butt in since the two of you dopes seem to just be sitting around. No, um, I, I think one of, one of my biggest things is that in today's culture, we aren't listening to understand other viewpoints. We instead listen to respond to other viewpoints. And when we're doing that, we're cutting down kind of any sort of um, ability to try to see why someone might have the views that they have. Um, and instead we're trying to change their views and their opinions. And we, when we realize that these are, are deeply rooted in, in people um, and they've grown more deeply rooted over time. Like when we look back at the eighties, people didn't really have, um, like they weren't really following stuff. They didn't really have political viewpoints. Now we're seeing the masses align with where the elites have been. Um, and, and that's become even more intense as well, but we're seeing people people even that don't have a terrific amount of um, uh, political information are polarized and they do have views on, on these sorts of things. And so I think it's really important for us to um, be able to, to listen to try to understand why, like if you're not somebody that is as in tune to the needs of people in rural America, um, then start listening to people who are actually defining what their problems are and, and defining why they feel like they are, are being left out as we're talking about where should we put our investments as a society and things like that. Begin to listen to that in a way that is, um, is truly trying to understand it instead of simply trying to say, yeah, but look at all the problems over here, right? So I, I think um, when we begin to have those discussions and people feel heard in those discussions, we can begin to start to see how we can work together to, to better society. I completely agree with that. I think it's massively important to not just look at somebody's beliefs and sort of ideological perspectives as like some sort of independent variable that causes how good of a person they are, but in fact, as dependent variables that are influenced by other factors in their life, whether it's you know their upbringing, their socialization. Um, the values of their families, their friends, whatever, um, but also the, the types of, of news media they consume or the types of information that they have readily available to them in those situations. And so I guess for me, I'm in a position of privilege to be able to say, I, I mean, I exist in academia. And so it's easy for me to sort of like take a step back and analyze things intellectually sometimes and say, you know, I'm going to respond to this with some level of like thoughtfulness as opposed to reactiveness because I'm also like a, a youngish white cis man. Like it's, it's easier for me not to make some sort of like a, a reactive response because my, my identity is not being questioned at all times. And so what really, what I struggle with, I mean, not so much intellectually, but like in practice when I'm teaching a class um, and dealing with perspectives that, that can sometimes butt up against one another or cause a lot of tension in the room is how to ensure that people both feel heard and are, yeah, so to make sure that people are, feel heard, but also that people aren't being implicitly sort of victimized also in the, in the process. And that's a difficult thing to do. So I don't really have a, a great answer for you. Well, and I think one of the things too, to keep in mind as we're having discussions with others is that um, things like moral um, moral beliefs and and um, kind of those beliefs in what we should be doing in society 
vary across people and there's different kinds of moral beliefs. And so, so instead of just viewing, I think what a lot of people do is we tend to view people on the other side of a debate or a discussion as immoral or against, um, directly against what I am trying to say. But in fact, when we look at moral structures, it could be that I may be valuing something like social justice and they may be valuing a different kind of moral you know, like a different way of looking at something like fairness, for example, than I am when they're looking at an issue. So it's not that they're immoral and they're a horrible person, it's that they're viewing it through a different lens, a different moral lens than like I am. So that's what I, what I mean by saying, if we listen to try to understand where that other person may be coming from, we can then begin to hear where, um, where there may be other things that we could be listening to on an issue as well that are um, that don't need to shut down or diminish my own views, but that that can also enrich how we approach things. Yeah, going off of the immoral point, I think that like we have a tendency to like dehumanize people a lot. And so like, okay, so like my whole family is very different from me politically, like ideologically. And I would just like go after them, honestly. And it was really easy as like the only person who's gone to college to like pretend that I knew so much more than them and everything. And I think that like was just proving though how much like how dehumanized they already felt by like society. And so then me doing it on top of it would just make it worse and I just noticed that it was like it was only getting worse from there and so I I was like thinking about it and thinking about like how like the my family members are human beings who I like care about with valid experiences like changing the way that they look at things morally and everything and I tried to like change the language that I use like when I talk to them like I I think like having body, like using your body language and like your facial expressions to convey that you're actually listening is important. Finding like, I think, and I think that people have more in common than they realize, like finding specific policy issues, especially like with local and state government, that's not as hard. And like really just like emphasizing that and everything and not saying like, I agree with you, but like avoiding the word, but but just agreeing with them on certain things. And then like even just listening in a way where you don't have to respond, like just listening to them sometimes where it's like, I'm not even gonna try to convince you. I hear you, like it's, that's fine. And then at other points, like if the opportunity arises, usually like then they'll feel comfortable with you enough to ask questions. And that's when like you can actually have productive conversations on things, but like when they're coming at it from a perspective of like, this is my opinion, this is who I am, this is what I believe, like disagreeing with that then becomes like a personal disagreement and you're disagreeing with who they are. And so like, instead hearing that and waiting for the opportunity, because like people always have questions. It's just a matter of like them feeling comfortable enough to ask them with you, so. Laurel, I like, I like your point about people sort of sometimes getting defensive or wrapping up a lot of their ideological perspectives in their in their entire identity. And so I'd like to, if it's possible, put um, Dr. Cord on the spot here and see if if she can give us a sense of of why that, at least why that seems to be happening more often or like why polarization seems to be increasing so much more. Um, do you have any, any perspective on that? Well, I, I, I'll speak to the kind of that, that core value sort yeah. of so so when we when we study this there are certain things that we simply have opinions on or views on right you know like um i like a sonic slushy the grape with the uh the nerds in it right like that's a preference but when we're dealing with things that are like they're really good by the way <laughs> they are really good um but but when you're dealing with something that is like something a way that you define yourself at your core Right. So like when you think about the different ways that you you define yourself, there's typically things like if somebody is religious, they will define themselves as, as being somebody who is Catholic or who's, you know, whatever. Um, that's really the only religion I, I can think of. So no, I'm just kidding. Um, 
but 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 you also define yourself by like I'm a woman, I'm a mother, I have you know certain roles then in society. I define myself at at my very core at those things. So if you do something that say um, you know attacks um, or threatens my children, good luck because you're not going to make it right. Um, and and so so that's the same sort of thing we see. If you are taking an attack on something in a way where I define myself at my core as somebody who believes in that and who defines myself by that kind of characteristic or that belief, uh, then that's going to be very, very difficult for me to just let that one go kind of thing. And what we're doing more and more in our kind of polarized society is we are making more issues, I think, uh, fall into those kinds of categories where we are playing to people's like, when we look at, at fear processing, um, fear processing is, um, is something that um, conservatives are more likely to have a heightened reaction to. So when you see the right, especially, try to define things as a threat or, or to try to invoke this fearful reaction to people, um, that is absolutely playing to that predisposed characteristic of, of processing th things through um, either the disgust or the fear part of the brain in a way that's going to have a different response than somebody who's liberal, right? So, so we see these political tactics as well trying to pull people further apart um, due to knowing how this is going to play into these emotional reactions that people have based off of a lot of these kind of core values sorts of things. So are those like, are those core values are, I mean, can we boil them down to like a few that are listable or is it entirely subjective based on well, or idiosyncrasies of like- Yeah, I mean, there's things like people's, people's uh, religious beliefs or people's um, kind of the, they, it's how they define themselves at their core. And we're getting people so that they're more and more, um, uh, their beliefs in politics, like they're getting so that they have more and more beliefs when they have to do with political issues. Again, whether or not they're processing the information, have this the reasoning behind it um, in their heads is a whole nother thing. Um, but they have these beliefs. And as you're looking at a person's core, like only you can define what you're like, if I asked you right now, Colin, and, and do not answer this question, right? But if I asked you right now, like, how do you define yourself? What are you, Colin Hannigan? Um, you could probably rattle off some things to me right now that are important to you and how you define yourself, right? Um, and so, so I mean, but there are these things that that do tend to kind of see these patterns or these these things that um, you know I. I, I don't have the like white male privilege you have in society, right? So then that's one way that I define myself um, is, is as kind of like, I'm, I'm a white woman in society, right? And this is how I have to kind of uh, go through things and how I process things. Now there's a certain amount of privilege to that as well, of course, right? Um, but but um, yeah, so so it's it's it varies by person, but there's are of course yes some characteristics that keep coming up, and how somebody defines themselves at their core. If that makes any sense. Yeah, I like that point a lot. That that political issues or things that may have been viewed in the past by more people as as maybe more of an impersonal piece are now being more integrated into that into that identity piece. I mean. Just yesterday, there was the verdict of the Derek Chauvin trial. And I think this is one of the reasons why it's so, so hard today to have a conversation with somebody of the opposing political belief. When you believe that police reform and accountability in policing is absolutely paramount to ensure that there's justice for everybody in the United States and somebody's political ideology. However, that may be informed by their genetics, their, the circumstances they grew up in, their religion, it's tough to reconcile those two factors of when you believe that recognizing one person's humanity of another political belief means accepting their, their belief that is oppressing other people. And I think that that, Colin, you kind of mentioned that, how that nuances the way that you direct the class, namely in 
in politics and political life and getting students to be vulnerable about where their beliefs come from while also ensuring that that, that, that conversation remains respectful and that people don't feel attacked for the space that they occupy in the world. And it's, I don't know if there's necessarily a, a question there, but it, it personally, it's something that I feel I have gotten worse throughout college at having conversations with people of different political beliefs because growing up in central Minnesota and rural Minnesota and figuring out relatively early that I was more left-leaning, I identify now as a Democrat. Um, I had to be good at that growing up. And, and now in a college environment, I don't have to be as good at that. And I wonder, it seems like we like to segregate ourselves politically as well and be in a group because there's comfort in being with a group of people who you hold the same convictions about the world with, right? So does that mean it's it's healthy to try to interact with different groups? How do we kind of how do we kind of start to to bridge some of those gaps? Because I think yeah. at the end of the day, it's it, you know it's upsetting. We we'd like to be more unified. We'd like to be able to talk to our neighbors, to to the people in our in our family, um, but it's difficult. Yeah. No, I think so. I'm sure that. Dr. Court has some really insightful stuff to tell us about like quote unquote tribalism and how that operates. Um, but like what your, what your perspective reminded me of Elliot is that I think, and this is, you know, I think this on some level is, is kind of intuitive, but it's something that I think we need to remind ourselves of frequently is that it takes practice. It absolutely does. Like you need to continue at it. Otherwise you sort of lose that ability. Um, and I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned the Chauvin trial and this notion of, of trying to have conversations with people you disagree with, um, especially in light of what we've been saying in terms of understanding biases, perspectives, and trying to listen and trying to sort of like, you know, as Laurel said, sometimes just sort of be quiet and let people share their perspectives without kind of waiting for that other shoe to drop that butt to come out. Um, and so I'll just share this really briefly, but I was on Facebook today and my, uh, my best friend from high school's mom is an absolute legend. Um, and so she says, um, she says, I hope that the guilty verdict from former or for former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin and the killing of George Floyd and the just announced U.S. Justice Department probe of the Minneapolis Police Department are the beginning of real change. So like run on sentences, not her full ticket. Um, the racist attitudes, abuse of power, contempt and callous disregard for people and their safety, the warrior training, the shoot first and ask questions later behavior, the disproportionate use of force, the lies and cover ups, they all have to stop. So she goes on, but then one of her Facebook friends who works in law enforcement himself says in, re in response to that, wow, if that's really what you think of law enforcement, you live in a clueless world. And her response really kind of resonated with me because she says, instead of getting defensive, instead of saying, oh, my, my you know, you're, no, you're the clueless one or like, you know, you're, you're being ridiculous, stop being immature or whatever because of that disagreement she sort of like rises above that and i think this is sort of what i was referring to before it's trying to investigate and examine perspectives and see sort of the sources of disagreement so that you can kind of respect where people are coming from in order to truly understand why they believe the things they believe so she says i don't think this is true of all police officers but it is true for some of them there's ample evidence to support that assertion i hope it is not true for you i live in the same world you do and while I can't share your perspective as a police officer, I am far from clueless. So the way that she sort of like stood up for herself in that conversation was respectful in her disagreement, but also acknowledged that people with different life experiences are going to have different perspectives and different political ideological sort of beliefs as a result, I think is, is something to be admired. And that's, it, I guess in my view, it comes down in, in a lot of ways to to practice, to sort of like, you know, making connections with people and trying really hard to, to sort of get over that initial like, oh no, you're on the wrong team, but get out of here. But anyway, I'll defer to Dr. Court on this. Yeah. No, um, oh, go ahead, Laurel, please. <laughs> um, I was just gonna say like, I think that it's also important to consider the fact that a lot of these people don't know that they're like they don't think that they're being racist and they don't think that they're like that they don't care it's not that they don't care about the well-being of other human beings like and saying that makes them just like buckle down more in proving proving that they care but in reality like a lot of this works 
in generalizations. And so like, because the thing is in their own life, a lot of the time they are not, they don't actively pursue racist tendencies, even if they commit microaggressions, <laughs> like they are friends with like people of color and things like that. But for some reason, there's like a dis, a dis, like there's no, there's not a connection between that and the federal, like the national level. And so they make these generalizations about people, but then they're friends with their neighbors and things like that. And so in conversation, if you're able to personify like that and see like George Floyd as like, and convey George Floyd as like their neighbor, as like someone you know, as like your friend who you work with, Miguel or something, you know, then they're more likely to actually like see see things because they haven't been exposed to people like that or they don't even make the connection that they have been because they're like, oh, but they're not like that. They're not part of the generalization. And so like pushing them into like real world examples as opposed to these like broad, like these people are bad, these people like, do commit crimes and are criminals things like that like it talk to them about like their own cousin who like committed a crime and went to jail or something be like they're you don't see them as a criminal they're like a full human being right like it's just like this like they're someone else's cousin and so I think that yeah like putting on it is like they are being like racist when they like say these things and they aren't caring about like the well-being of other people but you can't tell them that or else they're not going like you can't say that or else they're never going to see it because that just makes them shut down and then you're being like elitist and you're being classist and you aren't like seeing the th the world in the way that they see it which is very dangerous so and i think politically if we are going to see um change made we have to understand the arguments that the other side is making and how they're defining them in order to frame the other side of the argument in a way that it can be receptive. For example, in state and local government, I had students firmly on both sides of the aisle. Um, and we were talking about policing uh, at state and local government. So that's one of the big things that we talked about. And we tend to do things like with defund the police, right? Where, where the tagline defund the police implies something that, that people who aren't in favor of it can run with, right? Um, and can talk about, see, you hate police officers, all this sort of stuff, right? And, and what we find is when I, when I um, introduce them to the actual things that the defund the police, the woman who founded it um, said they valued, they were things that people on both sides, we, it turns out, you know, we can agree on the fact that we ask way too much of police officers. You know, I also had a state trooper come in um, and, and speak with my students and, and he was actually at the Capitol um, and he was down um, during, during the protest in the cities, he was called in. Um, and so he talked about his experiences there. And then they asked him, well, how did you just go back to doing, you know, your regular work after that? And he said, well, it was kind of easy because you know, I sit in my car and I make sure that people are safe out on the roads. So because he had such a clearly defined like job um, description, he isn't having to go and do, you know, like I'm having to go and do a domestic dispute. And now I'm having to go over here and dealing with this and, and do this and that and, and be, be pulled um, in every possible direction to be dealing with things that should really be the social worker working on, on, on certain issues or, or um, mental health providers helping with certain situations or health, um, general health kind of people doing that. We're asking so much of them. So when we actually looked at those criteria, I, I was surprised when I went through and read um, the students' reactions to it, because they said, you know, when we actually got into what it was, we weren't that far apart. There may be certain things, of course, like we don't want to demolish the whole thing and start back over or certain elements of that. Um, and, and some people obviously are on the extreme ends of either either side, but um, but for the most part, it was like, oh, that actually kind of makes sense. And then we're able to look at some places around the country where they're trying things like, well, let's send somebody who's more of a mental health practitioner with an officer to go and de-escalate the situation, right? When you know it's somebody that might have a mental health issue, right? So then we're able to investigate that more. And it's like, oh, okay, that's now I'm starting to understand how this may be kind of different than how 
my side of the aisle defined them through media and through you know every other possible way. So, yeah. Oh, I think I think that's massively important, especially especially the point that you're making. I think about how social movements and how sort of like groups of people design messages that are sometimes mobilizing to some, but completely alienating and demobilizing to other, like others. Like we think about Black Lives Matter. We think about what that means to some groups who are opposed to it. But then we think, well, how can we disagree with that? Like we're literally saying such a simple statement of like the lives of black people are important, they matter. But then people think, well, like, I mean, does that mean that my life doesn't matter? So like the message design, the framing and sort of how that helps mobilize is massively important in this sort of scenario. And the same with defund the police. It's like on one side, we want it to be sort of radical enough to bring in all sorts of, of different contingents to the left of center. We want, want it to be radical enough to bring in people who might have supported Bernie Sanders or even you know, further left candidates but also we want it to be reasonable. So like we go with defund the police and then people are like, no, does that mean we're gonna get rid of the police altogether? Does that imply abolishment? Does that imply, like, I mean, so the message itself is in terms of social movement, recruitment and mobilization is second to none, absolutely one of the most important things. And that's why we see such pushback is because messages aimed at having such radical change are good for mobilization on one side, but bad for sort of like unanimity and like getting everybody involved in the same process it's kind of a, a six of one half a dozen of the other like it there, there perks and pitfalls either way it's a trade-off so i think in discussion a lot of what i'm hearing is that there are great benefits to speaking to people who ideologically do not align with ourselves um and if you approach it in the right way, it can be a very productive conversation. I'm wondering if there are any implications to that. Like, do you see like calling class, do you see students who maybe start that conversation with that intention and end up doubling down in their beliefs? Like I know in my experience, sometimes I will start a conversation that way. And by the end of the conversation, there's absolutely nothing that that person could say to me to make me believe anything other than what I came to that conversation with. So have you seen implications of people trying to have these conversations? And failing yes all the time all the time including from myself like i i'd want to approach a conversation i'm like yeah what do you think and then already in my head i'm finding these thoughts of like oh my gosh this is ridiculous and i want to keep going back to like oh maybe he's born maybe it's maybe like whatever but like i want to i want to sort of like figure out what the perspective is but then i have this knee-jerk reaction to be like oh how can you be so wrong how can you have this this belief about the world. And that's something, like I said before, you've got to practice, it, it takes training. And I think this is something that all of you on this call are pretty good at, um, especially like Dr. Court, the way that you can handle disagreement to me is is absolutely fascinating, but also admirable. Like I, I try to do this in, in 211 because it's such a, it's such a, like a hot topic issue. It's like, we want to talk about politics, but then, you know, add some spice to it and, you know, get people worked up about it. and see if that brings people into the conversation and it does that works but then how do we sort of like make connections and de-escalate all the time I, I see people try to to start a conversation in class but then eventually either they themselves end up thinking okay I bit off more than I can chew I don't want to continue this conversation because it's like talking to a brick wall or whatever they're feeling or the people on the other side are like I mean I don't really want to tell you because I know that you're just going to try to chew me out for my values and my beliefs. Um, but I think fighting the urge to give up on that and just sort of be like, a, you know, remember the slogan, Dugans don't quit and continue to practice those skills. I think that's massively important. Yeah, I, I think for me, um, one of the big things that I try to always remember um, when you're when you're sitting there in in it's a tough to gauge how much you can push somebody, right? Um, and and so I always, um, I, I never go into a, a discussion with the mode of, I need to flip everyone's opinions to mine, right? Um, instead, yes. I think the healthiest way to, to look at that is, how do I plant some seeds? 
how do I plant some seeds in this discussion? Because I know that they're, they probably never had a talk with somebody holding a, a or I'm, I'm assuming that they haven't had many, many conversations with people outside of their own kind of ideological group, because that's just what we're doing today in society, right? We don't like that cognitive dissonance of being around um, people that are outside of our, our own beliefs, right? Um, and, and how do I plant some seeds so that as they then hear new information after this conversation that we have, that they might look at it even a little bit differently, not maybe changing entirely who they are, um, but that they might look at that and say, oh, I remember when I was having that conversation with Whitney and she brought up that maybe this is why um, we, we should do X, Y, and Z, you know? And, and then they can take that into consideration and maybe view that, that issue slightly differently. Now, what we also know is that it is possible for ha to have people over time as they're exposed to things in a way where they're also able to be receptive to messages to evolve in their views. And I think one of the things that we need to do better on is allowing people space to grow. And, and, and to be patient with that process. Um, because I, I think we, we, that is absolutely, you know, we want an answer now and we want it to be our answer. Um, and, and that I, isn't a way that we can, that's not going to happen overnight. We want it to happen overnight. But I think um, seeing certain tough conversations that you have with people, especially when you're dealing with like loved ones and, and, and friends and family, um, those sorts of things, having that be a good practice. You know that you love these people, right? Um, and, and that you have so much in common and these are the people that are gonna be um, you know, your family fabric for the rest of your lives. Um, how do you have conversations with those people too, so that it's like, okay, but then they also see me as somebody that they can have a conversation with because they know that I'm going to give them the room to kind of, uh, you know, potentially evolve, um, but also that I'm going to respect where they're at right now today um, and, and share a little bit more about my views too, right? Here's a little inside baseball pedagogy for some of you and, and basically like what I, what I do in my classes that I think can be pretty useful in regular day-to-day -day conversations that you all have too, um, which is to say like, I, I'm a firm believer in and, a, and an over-relier on um, Socratic inquiry. And so what that means in practice for me is if I ask a student, even if it's like, you know, oh, what do you think about this issue? And they say, well, you know, I think X, I'll be like, huh, interesting, how come? And then you sort of like keep asking follow-up questions to make them process and challenge simultaneously the beliefs that they're holding, where they come from, why they think this, how this lines up with other sort of like logical premises or conclusions that they've that they've sort of like held as true in their mind in real time makes it so they're sort of either convincing or like, I guess, unconvinced, how do you like deconvincing? I'm not sure what the word is there, um, themselves. So if, if, if I were to ask Laurel, like Laurel, what do you think about know the the verdict in the Chauvin trial and Laurel gives an answer then I might be like well how come that's the case what do you like um what do you think about x or what do you think about y or interesting point like do you think other people agree with you how come that kind of stuff you keep pushing for more answers um just very simple things like how why what about what is all this kind of stuff then you get people to really sort of explore the values that they hold and explore the reasons behind their beliefs as opposed to just this sort of, again, knee-jerk reaction. Like, I think this, and you can't convince me otherwise. Like, I don't have to convince you right now. I just sort of have to make you realize that maybe you're not totally convinced in the first place. Yeah, I I love you, Whitney and Colin, so much. But I, I agree in the fact that I don't think those conversations, like, happen in a productive way all the time in the classroom like as someone who's changed her mind on like every issue <laughs> at this point like the classroom like plants seeds like it questions yourself internally and everything and it's just all of those little things and like the conversations where you kind of change your mind they happen in private where like people can't like see you and judge you or hear you because that's when you're going to open up about the things that you're like, you know, are being questioned. You're not going to like question yourself or um, your beliefs in front of like a group of people who you're afraid of, you know, and you feel endangered by. And so you're going to do that with your roommates like later that night 
after like you both like plant seeds and question us. And that's when that's like the importance of then feeling secure with people and feeling like you can talk to them about a lot of these things. I have a, I have a question for, I suppose, just all of you. Um, and Regan, you know this because at, at one point in my politics and political life class, I assigned an article that's from Inside Higher Ed, which is like a kind of a, an academic like blog slash journal slash what have you. And the article is basically about like stop blaming professors for this, you know, for this sort of like liberal trend in colleges, like people showing up to school and then becoming radicalized, like AOC leftists or whatever the, the theory is out there. Um, and it says stop blaming professors. It's not the profs necessarily that are making people move more left in the ideological spectrum it's it's peers that are doing that and so i mean it's 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 a theory it's an assertion but i wonder what's what's everyone else's experience with that do you think that the profs are are sort of like i mean certainly there's there's probably a hand in that based on the fact that you know curricula is already set up and profs assign specific readings or specific types of, of perspectives sometimes whatever but you think that peers especially in on college campuses do a lot of that socializing or do you think it's what what do you think just tell me um i i think my answer would tie back to something from courts class with like in group and out group dynamics like if you are put in a social situation and you look in a room and you say i want to be friends with them and then you start talking to them and they're like massive trump supporters and they have manga hats on like you are probably more likely to then follow that to be in that group in the same way on the left side. So I do think on college campuses, that is a part of the dynamic of like, if you want to be in this group and affiliate with that group, you'll probably be more likely to lean that way. And then once you're in that group, you'll take these like indications of like, well, they act this way and I wanna be in this group or I now identify with this group. So I'm now also going to like take these actions because it's a part of being this group. And I, so I do think that that comes in the form of peers in college. Yeah, I, I liked what you said, Dr. Court, about like planting the seed, because I think that that's kind of the way that I think about class a little bit in terms of the role that it's played in shaping my political ideology. I think to the political autobiography assignment, which for people who might not be aware, is an assignment where you where you discuss the way that your race, gender, class, social circumstances more broadly have you know, interacted to create where you stand politically. And while I wrote about that my first year of college, I think that I think that those were kind of planting some seeds of not necessarily doubt, but a little bit of, I mean, it's almost like engaging in the Socratic method with yourself. Like, well, where does this where does that belief come from how did that actually interplay with this experience um but i think that i would actually tend to agree that i think that the most kind of dramatic changes that have happened within my own political ideology and beliefs um have occurred because of peer-to-peer -peer discussions um and maybe it's maybe it's something about i don't know being at the same being the same age and, and group and identifying with another individual who kind of espouses different beliefs. But for whatever reason, I, I think that that has been the case for me. It's interesting. But yeah, I mean, we had some other questions here, but I think that as we're kind of coming up on the hour, um, always want to respect all your time, wondering if you have any kind of concluding closing thoughts or remarks or what a takeaway for listeners should be regarding how we form our political ideology how we talk across those lines and, and hopefully combat some of the division that is um so widespread well i i feel like i can't stress enough the importance of um the willingness to have the conversations with people outside of our own social groups um you know regan you alluded to this a little bit we won't even sit with this in-group out-group dynamics we won't even we we sit farther away 
when you're just walking into a room um, and you see something um, like this, this particular study was where somebody had an anti-abortion um, button on their back. And then they studied how far apart did those people then sit? And so, so people who were on the other side of that issue sat farther away than the people who were, were closer to them on the issue, right? And, and so I, I can't stress enough the importance of having conversations with people who hold different views than you, making an effort to do things like um, uh, take yourself out of your own comfort zone when you're looking at, at your news media, see what the other side is saying about issues. Um, to, to follow things that are outside of your comfort zone within reason. You don't have to go to the extreme ends here, um, but on your social media and things like that. So that you can begin to understand what other people's concerns may be, how they're framing things, how they're understanding issues as well, so that we can have more compassionate conversations with one another and build empathy towards um, people that are outside of our own in-group dynamics. Um, in, in, in doing that, again, I you know listening with the ear of your heart. Now, I'm not doing that to play this game of gotcha, um, which is what people expect. I don't know how many conversations I've had with people that were expecting just that. And at the end of the conversation, they said, well, see, we're not that far apart on this issue. Even though they didn't move at all, I didn't move at all. Like if you were to ask us our views on it, but we began to understand one another through having that conversation. And, and so that made them feel that much closer even though we're still in the same spot, but they felt heard and they felt like, um, like there were things that made us then again similar um, in, in, in both coming at this at issues from, from like caring deeply about what it is that we care deeply about. Um, so I think, I think um, you know, it's hard to do, especially when everyone's expecting to be on the defense. Um, but I think it's it's critically important given um, you know the the challenges we're facing today at becoming simply more and more polarized. So yeah. yeah, I would say don't don't like give up on people in the way of like if you know someone and you really like them, but they have different political beliefs from you. So you're just like you decide just not to talk to them anymore. That's like one of the most like unproductive things you can do because everyone is like a human being and is willing to change their minds or not change their minds. Um, but only they'll only like see your point of view if they trust you. Like Derek Black, um, white, the white nationalist who was like the godson of KKK leader, David Duke. He, the only reason that he ever changed his mind is because although he was anti-Semitic, like some Jewish people in his class were reached out to him and invited like him to dinners with them every week. And like with time, like by becoming friends with him as like a human being and not just this like white nationalist, like even though they knew that about him, he ended up like denouncing, denouncing white nationalism. And like, he ended up changing his mind, but that's only because people gave him a chance like as a human being and as a person. Yeah, I agree with all of this. I mean, for me, it's just a matter of emphasizing perspectives, emphasizing evidence from a broad array of sources, but maintaining that level of practice. And by practice, I mean like exposure to people with different views, with different identities, et cetera. And, and working at the same time on developing your own sense of empathy and that self-examination that's required to sort of understand not just where other people's beliefs come from and you know why they think the way they do, but where, why you do, um, and sort of what values are at play with your beliefs and how you might be able to find some common ground. Like maybe we disagree on a specific policy, but fundamentally the reason that we're interested in the policy is because we both value X in the first place. But also um, kind of emphasizing a little bit too, like you know, find room for self-care in that. Um, if if a conversation is too tough or you feel specifically attacked or targeted based on your identity then it's okay to bow out but in other cases when you have policy disagreements certainly like practice 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 and like i i love the fact that dr court brought up that experiment where students sit by others who agree with them because i mean if you imagine even down in simon's g10 or something like that having a course 
so often I've noticed how, I mean, within, you know, some probabilistic range, like students kind of form like a left-right dimension sometimes. Uh, maybe it's inverted, but still students sometimes form that. And so like sit by somebody different once in a while and get some practice learning about other people's values and what they think the way they do. Well, we hope you enjoyed this final interview. I know that Regan and I really did. We usually like to do a couple takeaways from the episode. Um, and so a couple of the things that I walk away with from this episode are one, that people's political ideologies are informed by both nature and nurture. So the environments that we grow up in um, and also some of our like biological realities, who we are, what's our makeup. And also just not to be demeaning when we talk to people across political um, across political difference, across party lines, um, because ultimately when we have condescending conversations, those don't help to change anything. Um, they make people defensive and these kind of conversations are really important. Yeah, I agree with all that. I also think with the nature and the nurture, it's really easy, or at least I have found myself simplifying things to being black and white and opposite ends of the spectrum and good people and bad people. But considering all these factors, there's a lot of gray there. so just not oversimplifying and saying you are bad, you are good, you are whatever. So. Yeah, so we appreciate you tuning in and for being followers of I'm Glad You Asked. And so for one more final time, I'm Elliot Edeburn. I'm Regan Dolezal. There it is. And <laughs> together, together. I'm, I'm glad, glad you asked. asked. Nice. <laughs>